Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. And welcome to Teddy Talks for Tuesday, May 26th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wigan, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, future home of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. This past Memorial Day weekend uh, on Sunday, home to the uh, Badlands Gravel 100. Uh, imagine after a couple of days of gentle rain, riding a mountain bike across the Mata Hay Trail. A good portion of that uh, uh, runs uh, to the west of the uh, Little Missouri River and runs nearby Medora here. And, and uh, boy, the gumbo must have been some tough slogging for some of those uh, folks out on the Mata Hay Trail this weekend, living the strenuous life. And we hope you'll come and put Medora on your itinerary this summer, perhaps on your way to Yellowstone or Glacier National Parks, Mount Rushmore, uh, uh, Battle of the Little Bighorn uh, or uh, Devil's Tower. All of these are very nearby to us. The Black Hills and Badlands of South Dakota, not that far away. I've really enjoyed Teddy Talks during the months of April and May. 26 days with the 26th president during the month of April and 26 days with the 26th president during the month of May. We're starting to get quite busy now in Medora, even though things are uh, going much slower. Uh, many fewer people were socially distancing. We're being very careful and considerate uh, uh, to people's uh, space and making changes along the way that uh, just make sense. At the same time, uh, these are our national parks, the wild spaces meant for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. Those are words from the Organic Act of 1872, creating Yellowstone, repeated again in 1916 for the act creating the National Park Service for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. And I can think of no greater benefit now than to get outdoors, especially if you're able to go with your, with your family, most especially your children and your grandchildren. We had a wonderful program yesterday morning, Memorial Day. Uh, you'll always find those available. Uh, in the Facebook uh, feeds for Medora ND and Teddy Roosevelt's show, but also uh, being uh, archived and available as a podcast, either at Spotify uh, uh, by our friends at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation under Teddy Talks, uh, or again uh, on YouTube. Again, find uh, Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation and their 
uh, program, Teddy Talks, on YouTube. Uh, with our getting up and running this uh, early summer, it may be a little while before those are uh, posted on Spotify and YouTube. But I hope you'll join us this week as we conclude the month of May through Saturday. Today we have, uh, again, the concept of Teddy Talks, things he said, did, wrote uh, on this date or uh, uh, some other uh, uh, important connection, making it uh, uh, something to be uh, uh, shared with you on a particular date. Today, May 26th, two speeches, seven years apart. One is President of the United States on that great Western tour of 22 states and two territories during the spring of 1903. This from Spokane, Washington, one of my favorite places, uh, uh, Gonzaga College uh, uh, in that uh, community. Liberty Under the Law, Spokane, Washington, May 26, 1903. And the conditions of success, Cambridge Union, Cambridge, uh, England, United Kingdom, May 26, 1910, following the funeral of King Edward VII. And, and after uh, over a year being away from the United States and Africa touring Europe, to conclude the week, Wednesday, May 27th, remarks of Theodore Roosevelt in Montana in 1903. May 28th, remarks of Theodore Roosevelt in Idaho in 1903. Friday, May 29th, remarks of Theodore Roosevelt in Utah, May 29th, 1903. So you can see he kept quite the pace. There's uh, multiple speeches in each of those states on those dates. We'll conclude Saturday. We'll Go back to Theodore Roosevelt as governor of New York, May 30th, 1899. Remarks by Governor Theodore Roosevelt at Grant's tomb and at the Metropolitan Opera House, New York City, New York. Uh, those remarks to the Grand Army of the Republic, the, the great veterans organization. Here in Medora, we salute our veterans each and every day. The Boy Scouts come and raise and lower the flags. And uh, we'll be remembering Dr. Jeffrey Roth of uh, Oaks, North Dakota, as we do so, a great benefactor of the Boy Scouts. And we're going to uh, salute our veterans each and every night at the Medora Musical, and we will salute our veterans with our Veterans uh, Appreciation Day. Uh, that will be uh, July 12th, and uh, veterans uh, attend for free at the Medora Musical and some other uh, activities to celebrate our veterans. Looking forward to working with Colonel John Jacobson of the North Dakota National Guard, retired and the Western North Dakota Honor Flight. While the Honor Flight program has been suspended, uh, uh, delayed until the uh, uh, virus uh, settles, uh, we're still going to do some things to promote that worthwhile program here in Medora. May 26th, this date in history, Boston University is chartered by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, May 26th, 1869. I mention this in part to remember our dear friend, uh, Professor William Tilchin. He's still alive, he's still with us, but I believe I may have read a notice that Professor Tilchin uh, is uh, retiring from his position at Boston University. He will continue to edit the Theodore Roosevelt Journal. That's published uh, by the Theodore Roosevelt Association, the inheritor of the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Association and Women's Memorial Associations. Uh, those are a century old. They've done great work. Uh, they are the organizations that uh, have benefacted the country by uh, rebuilding and then gifting the birthplace of Theodore Roosevelt nearby Gramercy Park, Sagamore Hill, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt Island. Uh, lots of other things that the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Association has done. They hold an annual meeting as they will uh, this uh, October in Northern Virginia in Washington, D.C. 
I hope to see you there. Go to TheodoreRoosevelt.org for more information about the Theodore Roosevelt Association. And uh, at that particular banquet, we will auction for the benefit of the TRA a Teddy Roosevelt show anywhere in the country. And usually that means a combination of some sort of Friday, Saturday that we might entertain your school children and school staff and then have some sort of fundraiser or event for your organization. I'll keep you posted on details there. May 26th, 1883, the birth in Cincinnati, Ohio of Mamie Smith, American singer, actress, dancer, pianist. Uh, she would uh, die in September of 46, Staten Island, New York. I think you'll see a great deal about Mamie Smith in Ken Burns' film, Jazz. Uh, uh, May 26th, 1895, the birth in Hoboken, New Jersey of Dorothea Lange an American documentary photographer and photojournalist, best known for her Depression-era work for the Farm Security Administration. I posted at Teddy Roosevelt show just a little earlier this morning with a, a log of the programs to come this week. Uh, her famous picture titled Migrant Mother, probably the iconic photo from the Great Depression. There are many others. I heard it said on uh, public radio this weekend here on Prairie Public, that there is not yet an iconic photo uh, coming from this uh, virus pandemic in the United States or around the world. Uh, yet uh, photographic images, uh, you can probably think of uh, each great chapter, uh, 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 either uh, uh, something to celebrate or something to, uh, to ponder and some photograph that, that uh, defines that, uh, that era and certainly the work of Dorothea Lange. Uh, um, uh, she uh, died October 11th, 1965 in San Francisco, California. May 26th, 1896, on this day, Charles Dow publishes the first edition of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And if I have it right, they are reopening the floor of the New York Stock Exchange this morning, uh, probably already open at, at this time. May 26th, 1907, uh, the uh, Let's go back a decade. May 26, 1897, the original manuscript of William Bradford's History uh, of Plymouth Plantation is returned to the governor of Massachusetts by the Bishop of London after being taken during the American Revolutionary War. Uh, this uh, returning of war trophies or plunder uh, has its uh, traditions, and I was... Uh, it, uh, wonderfully uh, entertained by uh, a dinner at, uh, by the White House Historical Association where they hosted uh, a Canadian delegation. I had the chance to do a little entertaining myself, but was greatly entertained by the fact that Lord Earl Grey, the Governor General of Canada during Theodore Roosevelt's administration, returned a portrait of Benjamin Franklin that had somehow, somehow gone missing uh, from uh, the White House collection just prior to its being burned in the uh, War of 1812. So the birth, May 26, 1907, uh, of Marion Robert Morrison in Winterset, Iowa. You would know him as John Wayne, the Duke. Such a wonderful uh, film career. Uh, uh, oh, the great Westerns, of course. He, he uh, came to prominence in 1939 in John Ford's Stagecoach. Uh, I, uh, I have a friend, we have a friend, Michael Blake, uh, who uh, I do believe his father had a, uh, a role in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Have I got that right, Michael? 
And uh, I uh, enjoy The Quiet Man, one of my favorites with Maureen O'Hara set in uh, Ireland. And I believe that a John Huston film as well. Uh, it was in 1962 that John Wayne appeared uh, along with Henry Fonda and so many others in The Longest Day. Uh, that's the story of the D-Day invasion and the action thereafter. And, and uh, uh, perhaps it is set in the entire day and, and not after, but Henry Fonda plays Ted Roosevelt Jr. in that film. May 26th, 1914. So this is a, a speech that I won't make today. And, and again, making some editorial uh, decisions. This is uh, the date in 1914 on which Theodore Roosevelt made his lecture on his South American trip to the National Geographic Society in Washington, D.C. And there was just so much with regards to geography in that talk. Uh, obviously, Theodore Roosevelt gave the talk while he had a, a big map of the, uh, uh, the region of the Amazon of Brazil uh, at uh, handy with a pointer. So tune in next year. If we're doing some Teddy Talks next year, I'll see if I can do that, uh, that lecture uh, on uh, the River of Doubt. Get Candace Millard's book if you uh, haven't gotten it yet. Her first book, she's a, a tremendous author. That same day that Theodore Roosevelt was making that speech in Washington, D.C., May 26, 1914, uh, the death in, um, do you say, Barrie, Massachusetts, of Jacob August Reist, Reese, R-I-I-R-I-I-S, uh, a Danish name. He was born in uh, Ribe, Denmark, May 3rd, 1849. So I do believe we covered Jake Reese a bit uh, on his birthday. A friend of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the friendship uh, dating back at least to that first day when Theodore Roosevelt became uh, police commissioner of New York City and then elected president of that board by his fellow commissioners. Jake Reese, uh, a photographer, a journalist who uh, published a photographic book, How the Other Half Lives, a tour of the uh, tenement houses, the horrible living conditions there uh, of the immigrants living in New York City and uh, nighttime photography, flash photography, utilized and published uh, for the first time, at least uh, extensively in the popular uh, publications by Jacob Reese, by Jake. So Theodore Roosevelt said this, I, I didn't mention this during our birthday celebration. Theodore Roosevelt said, Jacob Reese, whom I tempted, who I am tempted to call the best American I ever knew although he was already a young man when he came hither from Denmark. After Roosevelt became president, he wrote a tribute to Reese that started, Recently a man, well qualified to pass judgment, alluded to Mr. Jacob A. Reese as, quote, the most useful citizen of New York, unquote. Those fellow citizens of Mr. Reese who best know his work will be most apt to agree with this statement. The countless evils which lurk in the dark corners of our civic institutions, which stalk abroad in the slums and have their permanent abode in the crowded tenement houses, have met in Mr. Reese, the most formidable opponent ever encountered by them in New York City. Friendships are a wonderful thing. May 26, 1939, the death in Chicago, Illinois, of Dr. Charles Horace Mayo, American physician, and along with uh, his uh, father, William Worrell Mayo, and older brother, William James Mayo, uh, founded the uh, what would become the Mayo Clinic in his birthplace of Rochester, Minnesota. 
died on this date, May 26, 1939. And thanks to the Mayo Clinic, I'm sure we've all had someone we love or care for who's uh, received good treatment there. May 26, 1943, the death in Gross Point Shores, Michigan of Edsel Ford, the American businessman, son of Henry Ford, father of Henry Ford II, namesake of the Edsel. May 26, 1903, we'll come to uh, the speech by Theodore Roosevelt in Spokane, Washington, a brief speech, then something a bit longer, his address to the Cambridge Union of which he'd just been made a member, May 26, 1910. At Spokane, Washington, Senator Turner and you, my fellow Americans, I am in a city at the eastern gateway of this state with the great railroad systems of the state running through it. On the western edge of this state in the Puget Sound, I have seen the homing places of the great steamship lines, which in connection with these great railroads are doing so much to develop the oriental trade of this country and this state. Washington will owe no small part of its future greatness and that greatness will be great indeed to the fact that it is thus doing its share in acquiring for the United States the dominance of the Pacific. Those railroads, the men, and the corporations that have built them have rendered a very great service to the community. The men who are building, the corporations which are building, the great steamship lines have likewise rendered a very great service to the community. Every man who has made wealth or used it in developing great legitimate business enterprises has been of benefit and not harm to the country at large. This city has grown by leaps and bounds only when the railroads came to it, when the railroads came to the state. And if the state were now cut off from its connection by rail and by steamship with the rest of the world, its position would of course diminish incalculably. Great good has come from the development of our railroad system. Great good has been done by the individuals and corporations that have made that development possible. And in return, good is done to them and not harm when they are required to obey the law. Ours is a government of liberty by, through, and under the law. No man is above it and no man is below it. The crime of cunning the crime of greed, the crime of violence, all are equally crimes, and against them all alike the law must set its face. This is not and never shall be a government either of a plutocracy or of a mob. It is, it has been, and it will be a government of the people, including alike the people of great wealth and of moderate wealth, the people who employ others, the people who are employed, the wage worker, the lawyer, the mechanic, the banker, the farmer, including them all, protecting each and every one if he acts decently and squarely, and discriminating against any one of them, no matter from what class he comes, if he does not act squarely and fairly, if he does not obey the law. While all people are foolish if they violate or rail against the law, wicked as well as foolish, but all foolish yet the most foolish man in this republic is the man of wealth who complains because the law is administered with impartial justice against or for him. 
His folly is greater than the folly of any other man who so complains. For he lives and moves and has his being, because the law does in fact protect him and his property. We have the right to ask every decent American citizen to rally to support of the law if it is ever broken against the interest of the rich man. And we have the same right to ask that the rich man cheerfully and gladly to acquiesce in the enforcement against his seeming interest of the law, if it is the law. Incidentally, whether he acquiesces or not, the law will be enforced. And this, whoever he may be, great or small, at whichever end of the social scale he may be, I ask that we see to it in our country that the line of division in the deeper matters of our citizenship be drawn, never between section and section, never between creed and creed, never, thrice never, between class and class, but that the line be drawn on the line of conduct, cutting through sections, cutting through creeds, cutting through classes, the line that divides the honest from the dishonest, the line that divides good citizenship from bad citizenship, the line that declares a man a good citizen only if and always if he acts in accordance with the immutable law of righteousness, which has been the same from the beginning of history to the present moment, and which will be the same from now until the end of recorded time. Well, a couple of tongue twisters for your host this morning. Theodore Roosevelt, his writing style, uh, his speaking style, we have a bit of from recordings made in 1912 or 1913 by Thomas Edison. And uh, though I think these are uh, read indoors into a, uh, uh, into a recording, uh, 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 the uh, aluminum cylinder being done, uh, I'm just thinking into a big, uh, not a megaphone, but a big uh, conical uh, 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 voice <laughs> capturing device that goes down to uh, the needle on the, uh, on the roll. Uh, I just say uh, it's sometimes a little bit of a, a need to wet the whistle. Get the lips and the tongue ready for Theodore Roosevelt's vocabulary and writing style, which can be a, a bit of a challenge. I, I do hope to get better and better. It's interesting that on this speech, made May 26, 1910, titled The Conditions of Success, an address at the Cambridge Union, of which he's just been made a member, the uh, publisher of this speech felt it necessary to make a, uh, an immediate footnote with regards to Theodore Roosevelt's introductory remarks. You'll find a lightness of heart, a, uh, a, uh, a sense of humor uh, and wit displayed here uh, by the president. And, and I'll just read the, uh, the footnote from the editor to give you a little sense of uh, what uh, Roosevelt is dealing with. The Cambridge Union is the home of the well-known debating society of the undergraduates of Cambridge University. To the vice president, uh, that is of the Cambridge Union, a member of Emmanuel College, the college of John Harvard, who founded Harvard University, was appropriately assigned the duty of proposing the resolution admitting Mr. Roosevelt to honorary membership in the Union Society, Roosevelt being a graduate of Harvard. In supporting the resolution, the vice president of the Cambridge Union referred to the peculiar relation which unites the English Cambridge and the American Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of Harvard, in a common bond and touched upon Mr. Roosevelt's African exploits by Jocos, Jocosley, 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 
uh, expressing, humorously expressing, anxiety for the safety of the quest of my own college, the Emanuel Lion, which I see before me well within range, meaning rifle range, Roosevelt having just gotten back from his lion hunt in Africa. There had just appeared in Punch, the uh, 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 British magazine, at the time of Mr. Roosevelt's arrival in England, a full-page cartoon showing the lions of the Nelson Monument in Trafalgar Square guarded by policemen and protected by a placard announcing that, quote, these lions are not to be shot, unquote. The secretary, in seconding the resolution, humorously alluded to the doctor's gown, hood, and cap in which Mr. Roosevelt received his degree as a possible example of what America sometimes regards as the gilded trappings of a feudal reaction and reactionary Europe. And by these uh, uh, initials, I know that now this is a publication of Mr. Abbott, uh, um, who did uh, so much uh, work with Theodore Roosevelt at Outlook magazine. If I may, we'll give it a go. President Theodore Roosevelt, former President Theodore Roosevelt, preferring to be often called Colonel Roosevelt uh, during this time. Uh, uh, this is the uh, first speech he makes since having made a speech in uh, Christiana, Oslo, Norway uh, for his Nobel Peace Prize. Mr. President and gentlemen, it is a very great pleasure for me to be here today and to address you and to wear what the secretary has called the gilded trappings, which show that I am one of the youngest living graduates of Cambridge. Something in the nature of a tract was handed to me before I came up here. It was an issue of the gownsman. The note here noting that uh, holding up amid laughter a copy of the undergraduate publication with a poem portraying the poet's natural anxiety lest I should preach at him. Allow me to interpose an anecdote taken from your own hunting field. A one-time master of foxhounds strongly objected to the presence of a rather near-sighted and very hard-riding friend who at times insisted on riding in the middle of the pack. And on one occasion, he, earn uh, he earnestly addressed him as follows. Uh, Mr. So-and-so, would you mind looking at those two dogs, Plowboy and Melody, they are very valuable, and I really wish you would not jump on them. To which his friend replied with great courtesy, My dear sir, I should be delighted to oblige you, but unfortunately I have left my glasses at home, and I am afraid they must take their chance. I will promise to preach as little as I can, but you must take your chance for it is impossible to break the bad habit of a lifetime at the bidding of a comparative stranger. I was deeply touched by the allusion to the lion and the coat of arms. Before I reached London, I was given to understand that it was expected that when I walked through Trafalgar Square, I should look the other way as I passed the lions. Now I thank you very much for having made me an honorary member. Harvard men feel peculiarly at home when they come to Cambridge. We feel we are in the domain of our spiritual forefathers, and I doubt if you yourselves can appreciate what it is to walk about the courts, to see your buildings and your pictures and statues of the innumerable men whose names we know so well and who have been brought closer to us by what we see here. 
That would apply not alone to men of the past. The Bishop of Eli to you is the Bishop of today. But I felt like asking him when I met him this morning, where is her word, the wake? It gives an American university man a peculiar feeling to come here and see so much that tells of the ancient history of the university. The tie between Harvard and Cambridge has always been kept up. I remember when you sent over Mr. Lehman to teach us how to row. He found us rather refractory pupils, I am afraid. In the course of the struggle, the captain of the Harvard crew was eliminated. He afterwards came down to Cuba and was one of the very best captains in my regiment. At that time, however, he was still too close to his college days. He was separated from them only by about two weeks when he joined me. To appreciate what I endeavored to instill into him, that while winning a boat race was all very well, to take part in a victorious fight in a real battle was a good deal better. Sport is a fine thing as a pastime, and indeed it is more than a mere pastime, but it is a very poor business if it is permitted to become the one serious occupation of life. One of the things I wish we could learn from you is how to make the game of football a rather less homicidal pastime. I do not wish to speak as a mere sentimentalist, but I do not think that killing should be a normal accompaniment of any game. And while we develop our football from rugby, I wish we could go back and undevelop it and get it nearer your game. I am not qualified to speak in as, as an expert on the subject, but I wish we could make it more open and eliminate some features that certainly tend to add to the danger of the game as it is played in America now. On the Pacific Slope, we have been going back to your type of rugby football. I would not have football abolished for anything, but I want to have it changed, just because I want to draw the teeth of the men who always clamor for the abolition of any manly game. I wish to deprive those whom I put in the mollycoddle class of any argument against good sport. I thoroughly believe in sport, but I think it is a great mistake if it is made anything like a profession or carried on in a way that gives just cause for fault-finding and complaint among people whose objection is not really to the defects, but to the sport itself. Now I am going to disregard your poet and preach to you for just one moment, but I will make it as little obnoxious as possible. The secretary spoke of me as if I were an athlete. I am not, and never have been one, although I have always been very fond of outdoor amusement and exercise. There was, however, in my class at Harvard, one real athlete who is now in public life. I made him Secretary of State, or what you call Minister of Foreign Affairs, and he is now Ambassador in Paris. If I catch your terminology straight, he would correspond to your triple blue. He was a captain of the football 11, played on the baseball team, and rode in the crew. And in addition to that, he was a champion heavyweight boxer and wrestler and won the 220-yard dash. His son was captain of the Harvard University crew that came over here and was beaten by Oxford two years ago. Well, I never took a great interest in defeats. Now, as I said before, I never was an athlete, although I have always led an outdoor life and have accomplished something in it simply because my theory is that 
almost any man can do a great deal, if he will, by getting the utmost possible service out of the qualities that he actually possesses. There are two kinds of success. One is the very rare kind that comes to the man who has the power to do what no one else has the power to do. That is genius. I am not discussing what form that genius takes, whether it is the genius of a man who can write a poem that no one else can write, the ode on a Grecian urn, for example, or Helen, thy beauty is to me, or of a man who can do 100 yards in nine and three-fifths seconds. Such a man does what no one else can do. Only a very limited amount of the success of life comes to persons possessing genius. The average man who is successful, the average statesman, the average public servant, the average soldier who wins what we call a great success is not a genius. He is a man who has merely the ordinary qualities that he shares with his fellows, but who has developed these ordinary qualities to a more than ordinary degree. Take such a thing as hunting, or any form of vigorous bodily exercise. Most men can ride hard if they choose. Almost any man can kill a lion if he will exercise a little resolution in training the qualities that will enable him to do it. Now, it is a pre pretty easy thing to aim straight at an object about this size, uh, the size of my, my water glass. Uh, almost anyone, if he practices with the rifle at all, can learn to hit that tumbler, and if he can hit the lion all right, or if he uh, learns to shoot as straight at its brain or its heart as at the tumbler. He does not have to possess any extraordinary capacity, not a bit. All he has to do is to develop certain rather ordinary qualities, but develop them to such a degree that he will not get flustered, so that he will press the trigger steadily instead of jerking it, and then he will shoot at the lion as well as he will at the tumbler. It is a perfectly simple quality to develop. You don't need any remarkable skill. All you need is to possess ordinary qualities, but to develop them to a more than ordinary degree. It is just the same with the soldier. What is needed is that the man as soldier should develop certain qualities that have been known for thousands of years but develop them to such a point that in an emergency he does, as a matter of course, what a great multitude of men can do, but what a very large proportion of them don't do. And in making the appeal to the soldier, if you want to get out of him the stuff that is in him, you will have to use phrases which the intellectual gentlemen who do not fight will say are platitudes. It is just so in public life. It is not genius. It is not extraordinary subtlety or acuteness of intellect that is important. The things that are important are the rather commonplace, the rather humdrum virtues that in their sum are designated as character. If you have in public life men of good ability, not geniuses, but men of good abilities with character, and gentlemen, you must include as one of the most important elements of character, common sense. If you possess such men, the government will go on very well. I have spoken only of the great successes, but what I have said applies just as much to the success that is within reach of almost every one of us. I think that any man who has had what is regarded in the world as a great success 
must realize that the element of chance has played a great part in it. Of course, a man has to take advantage of his opportunities, but the opportunities have to come. If there is not the war, you don't get the great general. If there is not a great occasion, you don't get the great statesman. If Lincoln had lived in times of peace, no one would have known his name now. The great crisis must come, or no man has the chance to develop great qualities. There are exceptional cases, of course, where there is a man who can do just one thing, such as a man who can play a dozen games of chess or juggle with four rows of figures at once, and as a rule, he can do nothing else. A man of this type can do nothing unless in the one crisis for which his powers fit him. But normally, the man who makes the great success when the emergency arises is the man who would have made a fair success in any event. I believe that the man who is really happy in a great position in what we call a career is the man who would also be happy and regard his life as successful if he had never been thrown into that position. If a man lives a decent life and does his work fairly and squarely so that those dependent on him and, atta and attached to him are better for his having lived, then he is a success, and he deserves to feel that he has done his duty and he deserves to be treated by those who have had greater success as nevertheless having shown the fundamental qualities that entitle him to respect. We have in the United States an organization composed of the men who 45 years ago fought to finish the great civil war. One thing that has always appealed to me in that organization is that all of the men admitted are on a perfect equality provided the records show that their duty was well done. Whether a man served as a lieutenant general or an 18-year-old recruit, so long as he was able to serve for six months and did his duty in his appointed place, then he is called comrade and stands on an exact equality with the other men. The same principle should shape our associations in ordinary civil life. I am not speaking cat to you. I remember once sitting at a table with six or eight other public officials and each was explaining how he regarded being in public life, how only the sternest sense of duty prevented him from resigning his office, and how the strain of working for a thankless constituency was telling upon him, and nothing but the fact that he felt he ought to sacrifice his comfort to the welfare of his country kept him in the arduous life of statesmanship. It went round the table until it came to my turn, this was during my first term of office as President of the United States. I said, Now, gentlemen, I do not wish there to be any misunderstanding. I like my job, and I want to keep it for four years longer. I don't think any President ever enjoyed himself more than I did. Moreover, I don't think any ex-President ever enjoyed himself more. I have enjoyed my life and my work because I thoroughly believe that success, the real success, does not depend upon the position you hold, but upon how you carry yourself in that position. There is no man here today who has not the chance so to shape his life after he leaves this university, so that he shall have the right to feel when his life ends that he has made a real success of it, and his making a real success of it does not in the least depend upon the prominence of the position he holds. Gentlemen, I thank you, 
and I am glad I have violated the poet's hope and have preached to you. Theodore Roosevelt, I didn't read all of the editorial comments that noted applause and laughter. He really was quite, quite jocular. Jocosity, I think, was the phrase that uh, was written by the editor. It's been a delight to be with you this Tuesday, May 26th. There's a great deal of good to be done. Wherever you are, you've got the right stuff in you. And I hope that today gives you an opportunity to uh, show it and demonstrate it in your service to others. We'll see you tomorrow here on Teddy Talks. Uh, again, we'll uh, follow Theodore Roosevelt through some of the Western states this week. We're going to tour uh, Montana and Idaho and Utah, and then conclude the week with uh, a couple of speeches to the members of that Grand Army of the Republic. Uh, and uh, uh, I look forward to being with you. There's so much in what Teddy said. Hence, Teddy talks. Goodbye. Good luck. We'll see you tomorrow from Medora, North Dakota, where Theodore Roosevelt said the romance of his life began. Take care.